Hey, it's Tony Shang, and you're listening to Click Here to Apply, the show where I talk to interesting people about their interesting lives. Today on the show is Edmond Cotta, who I've become friends with uh, over the last few months. He's the CEO of Blockfolio, one of the most used apps in crypto. Uh, it's where everybody goes to check the prices of their coins. Ed's got a fascinating background. Uh, that's very different from most high-performing individuals. As a kid, he was a pro skateboarder. And after college, he became a pro poker player. And after that, he led some of the very earliest efforts in creating a foundation around a cryptocurrency. Uh, we hear a little bit about that in his experiences with Dash. Uh, and today, he's the founder of Blockfolio. Um, as I mentioned before, one of the most used apps in crypto. Ed is distinctive to me in a few ways. Uh, one, he's has such a strong intuition about things and he's always trusted his gut and followed that wherever he goes. And that's led him to all of these diverse experiences that he's had over the course of his career. And not only does he follow his gut into all of these interesting new places, he also finds a way to perform at a really high level, going pro and skateboarding and poker um, are just two examples of that. And yet he manages to do all of this with a really kind heart and um, a strong emphasis on treating people right, uh, working with people over the long term, and uh, doing good for the world. I learned a lot from this conversation and really enjoyed it, and I think you will too. So without further ado, Adman Kata, thank you for being here. Let's start with poker. Is that the first, like, air quote, job that you had? No, actually, the f- I, I was a... I graduated from UC Berkeley in 1997, and I had a degree in civil and environmental engineering. And I was a project engineer building, like, a, a building overpasses in the Silicon Valley. No and, way, I didn't know that. Yes, for about nine months. <laughs> Wild. And, uh, and I'd go eat lunch, and I'd see all of these people working at tech companies that had a what seemed to be a much more enjoyable life than I had. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have to be at the job site at like six in the morning. I'd be there until like seven at night. And, uh, uh, this was in 98, I want to say. And around 99, you know, I started seeing like the dot com bubble. And I'd, I'd previously, I was super passionate about the music industry. I'd even worked in the music industry for a little while. Um, and I realized that, you know, in 1999, I had this idea. I was like, wow, I want to, I want to help. Uh, independent artists connect with music venues as i thought i thought that like you know uh music booking at least at the local level would eventually all be done over the internet right mm. um and uh i was right except i was like way early <laughs> uh so uh uh you know back then you didn't even have high-speed internet access the way you do today so transferring music files was extremely slow um, you know, it was way longer. It, it, it took, it took a, 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 a very long time before uh, everybody had high-speed internet access. Right. You know? And so our, our market timing for that idea, I, I helped start a company called Venue Point. And um, the timing for that for that business, it was just way too early. Hmm. Uh, and so I learned a pretty valuable lesson about market timing. Anyway, um, uh, and then uh, after I shut down that company, um, I... I was uh, a friend of mine took me to go play poker for the first time. And he's like, Hey, I think you'd be a good poker player. Oh, the first time um, you played poker was after college. Yes. I never played oh, in college. Crazy. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, this was, um, 
me see. I want to say it was this was around April of 2001, and he introduced me to poker. And uh, you know, I'd go play with him every once in a while. And eventually, I, uh, um, you know, like I said, we just shut down that company, and I, I guess. <laughs> Like in my twenties, I was like already burned out and felt, and felt, uh, I felt that I didn't want to go work for somebody again after that. And then, but also at the same time, um, um, I didn't want to try to start up another company yet. And so when I found poker, I started playing it and then kind of dove in headfirst on that, read a lot of books on, on how to play and kind of worked my way up, started out really small stakes and eventually, uh, uh, you know, played small six tournaments that led to bigger tournaments and then even bigger tournaments. And the next thing you know, I was a professional poker player that that was my sole source of income was playing poker. Is it really that like, uh, you know, one thing led to another or was it like, I guess the question is, did it come so naturally to you that you were just going with the flow and then eventually you were competing in the world series of poker or were there like really tough periods where you had to break through or things that you realized you didn't know how to do that you had to learn how to do. Um, Cause I could see both, both, both of those uh, things playing out. So p- poker, especially in like the smaller stakes is like, you know, it's part math and it's part psychology. Um, and um, a lot of it. And then, then there's a lot of it about just being diligent about like managing your risk of ruin. Right. Right. And there was a lot of a lot of uh learning early on. But a lot of it is like uh it's like uh how would I put it? You just gotta you have to do it <laughs> in order in order like you could read all the books you want, right? And but until you actually get in the game and start playing against people, it's gonna be really hard to kind of like get the nuance of the game. Sure. Uh, just from reading about it. And uh um uh, yeah, I mean I just started playing. I really I loved the game. It was very interesting to me, both the you know psychology aspect of it, and both uh, you know the odds and probability. At least, especially at the low stakes when you start, it's not that complicated. Um, hmm. You know, it's, there's not like a whole lot of like game theory. You're just looking for like a, a plus EV situation, um, and you know, figuring out if you had pot odds on your flush draws or on your straight draws, stuff like this. Um, and then you sort of, uh, yeah. But a lot of it, a lot of it was is interesting because a lot of it, for me at least was as crazy as it sounds was networking right and it was meeting seeing the other guys at the table what i was playing and kind of identifying who the really great players were and then just uh kind of befriending them and talking to them and and having uh you know people that you can collaborate and discuss theory of the game um and that was that was that proved to be probably the the at least for my kind of approach into the game that was the most valuable for me uh to kind of hear their perspectives and we would always you know we were just seeking truth how do you play different hand scenarios, right? Against certain kinds of opponents with certain kinds of uh, behavior tendencies and just constant discussion and, until you kind of like learn and, and, and optimize your game. Right. So that was, that was kind of interesting, I, I think. And so That's, then that is interesting. Was, was that kind of a prevalent mindset in the community or um, was it rare to, take this approach of networking as a way to improve your performance and eventually make you a, you know, higher class player. I think it, I don't know if it was like super prevalent. I, I know that like, you know, as I kind of 
grew like made it up in the ranks of poker, you'd see a lot of this where it, it, it's very interesting because like good players didn't always want to share information with players that weren't as good. Right. Yeah. Because, or, or like with players that are good, probably right. There's gotta be some degree of trade secret or, you know, like you're giving away your edge if you share yeah. everything, you know? Yeah. I mean, but also keep in mind back then, this was 2001. There weren't all these different training videos on how to play. There weren't nearly mm. as many books written about poker uh, kind of at that time the information just wasn't as 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 broad and and there were times where i you know talked to people and and i could tell they were hesitant to share but but i mean i was i was fortunate early on there were a couple of professional players that are sort of superstars now a few of them it's funny it kind of reminds me of the crypto space early on it's like these guys that were just doing it and out of passion and then <laughs> thing uh phil Locke, uh antonius fondiari uh, they call them the like, magician. They were like big WPT and WSOP stars, I guess. Crazy. And they, they played in the same casino as I did, uh, which was called Lucky Chances in Colma, South San Francisco. Okay. And and I just befriended them, and we just started talking about like you know poker theory a lot, and 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 yeah, and that that's just how it was. Um, you know, but at the same time, I think I think part of it also might have been the fact that like I had contributions to make as well, so it wasn't always yeah. just like, a one directional thing. It reminds me so much of uh, the crypto space where you could imagine people wanting to withhold information, but mostly people are just all collaborating to try to figure out what the heck is going on and how everybody can perform better. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's not something that like out it's outside of crypto. I actually really haven't felt that that much in my career. It's not like people have been particularly withholding with information or guidance or anything like that. It's just that, I've found there's this critical mass of people that are that seem to also be taking this approach of I want to perform really well. Part of it that is either naturally or kind of um, as a result of concerted effort uh, yeah. is like is results in this kind of open sharing networking thing. That's really fun, actually, and uh, I can't I can't imagine trying to figure something out that's tough to understand and try to perform at your best without assembling a really strong group of peers that are all supporting and helping each other. It's just such a superpower. Yeah. I mean, that was, I've always been kind of an extroverted guy. Mm -hmm. And so that was, was, I think that was kind of like, I think that's always been a little bit of my approach to everything. Like I Mm. just, I just enjoy meeting people. I mean, like, you know, even our friendship, Tony, like, you know, I think the most fun thing is just kind of getting together and like, you know, talking about whether space is going or what the opportunities are, or like, you know, I don't know. And, and, and sharing the things that I hear from my network that I think are insightful and seeing if, you know, you see, find them insightful as well. Right. Or, or oftentimes I'm also looking to, you know, get assumptions or like ideas battle tested right yeah yeah it it tightens the feedback loop and like it it makes everybody it gives everybody more leverage because you have multiple people gathering and synthesizing information yeah exactly (laughs) it's like many processors are better than one yeah that's right so you uh over time you got 
super good at poker. How how good did you get? Uh, I got really good when it was really easy. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's sort of like, uh, you know, poker went really mainstream in 2004, 2005. I forgot what year it was that Moneymaker won. Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker. And then it sort of felt like after, it's sort of like this, like, you know, the stars all crossed at the right time. You had this guy named Chris Moneymaker. Internet poker had just become a pretty big thing. And then they had the, you know, whole cams, uh, whole card cams on the tables where you could see the people's cards yeah. uh, were, were created. And so televised poker became very interesting. You know, once you could see the people's cards, you could see them sweat if they had a bluff or things like this. And so there's sort of this like, 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 you know, I guess like a perfect storm happened and there's this big explosion in poker. And of course, you know, like any, any arbitrage or any like real big opportunity uh, to make a lot of easy money, um, you know, in the beginning it's super easy and then all the smart people become aware of it and then they, all of them show up. And the next thing you see is like training videos coming out and, you know, um, the forums get really active with the, you know, really sharp seasoned players. Everybody's really dissecting the game. They're really solving, you know, and since 2005 till today, I mean, like a lot of these games have been like pretty much solved. It feels Mm. like, um, and so, so yeah, so like at a certain point, uh, so yeah, so when I first started playing, like, like I said, I had a a quantitative background with engineering and, uh, I was extroverted and always kind of like, you know, into the psychology of it. And then, and then, uh, you know, but then over time, uh, people, science the hell out of it and it became much tougher and so in the beginning i would say i was a, an extremely good player and then um you know then it, <laughs> i guess i guess when when everybody started dissecting the game it started feeling more like work where mm. to really kind of keep up with the game now you had to probably you know some of the best players i knew would dedicate one day a week just to study like to stay on top of the game yeah. and and that's when it got less interesting for me it was no longer as fun right and uh it became more of a uh and i wasn't and 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 i was i was partially like a a big component for me was driven by the competitive aspect of it as weird as this might sound it wasn't the money that was like driving me i mean it doesn't after getting to know you it doesn't surprise me at all i was actually going to ask like you it, it seems like you've done several things in your career that um other people would do because they're really financially motivated like you can make a ton of money in poker you can make a ton of money starting a a tech company and during the dot-com boom but uh you strike me as somebody who cares very little about making money and you like i i was mulling it over before we we hopped on the this call and I I was thinking of you kind of like a some like a form of artist and I don't know if you would describe yourself as one but you seem to be guided by uh a different set of things than the average professional poker player or tech startup CEO. Would you agree with that? Yeah. <laughs> I definitely yeah. I I uh yeah, I I uh I I'm driven by like uh yeah, you're right. It's that's what it is that I'm driven by. It's hard to understand though. <laughs> I don't even understand. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> right. I just, I, I find, I do know, I do know one thing that I like, I like, I like seeing, I like, I like spot, spotting, spotting either movements or trends like long before anybody else sees them. Hmm. There's a certain pride that I have in that. Like even poker, like it was, 
I was involved in poker in 2001 before, long before it became mainstream. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, my big passion in high school was skateboarding that eventually became mainstream. You know, I, uh, uh, I, that, and, and I love, I love subcultures or like countercultures. Right. Yeah. And poker falls in that skateboarding falls in that crypto falls in that. Right. right? And, and you, so you were really good at skateboarding too. Yeah. I was, I was very fortunate when I was younger to, to be, <laughs> uh, when I, when I went to college, my roommate in college was a professional skateboarder, uh, who he ended up being the best man at my, my wedding. Um, yeah, it was, that was my first, I would say true love in life was just skateboarding and the sort of like both athletic aspect, like there's a certain competitive aspect to it, but it was really with yourself. It was just about like Mm. tenacity, tenacity and drive to like, you know, put your body through this torture in order to achieve like, you know, a trick, uh, that you might only, you know, land once every like, you know, six or seven times. Yeah. Uh, and, and then just continuously developing your muscle memory until you became consistent at it, you know, um, there were certain, there were certain, you know, and then just like wrecking, <laughs> wrecking yourself and then picking yourself back up and doing it all over again. And, you know, and the funny thing is, it's not like, back then skateboarding wasn't like it was today you know with x games and everything it was you know uh you know you go to a place find a place to skateboard and get chased out of a mall by cops or (laughs) you know get bullied by jocks and but yet you still did it because you loved it right and uh it's funny that tenacity kind of that was instilled in me from that i would say really uh kind of laid down the groundwork for me doing three start the three startups necessary the first two failing to eventually you know do blockfolio because i think you know oftentimes people might try to start a company and after it fails they just give up <laughs> right mm-hmm. yeah but you're and used so, to like not landing the the jump or whatever yeah exactly the trick and then like you know or you know you hurt yourself a bit from it <laughs> right but you still you still want to do it right like i still wanted I still wanted to hit that, that, you know, check that off, get, get that, get that box checked in my life of like having a, a successful startup that I, that I helped create. Yeah. That, that skateboarding as a competition with yourself framing really makes sense to me when thinking about all the things that you've done. Cause poker can be viewed the same way, right? It's, you're really trying to perfect your mastery of the game. And there are, there's a social component to it, like a, like a multiplayer component to it. But, um, and, and as a, you know, especially as a tournament poker player, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, famine most of the time. And then every once in a while it's feast, right? Mm. You're cause you're playing against so many players and, and it's very top heavy in tournament poker where like the, the real prizes are first and second place, maybe third place. And, uh, but, but you're only going to get, like as a great poker player, uh, you know, if I remember correctly, you're only going to make it into the money about like, God, I it's been a while. It's, I want to say, I feel like I want to say it's like about 10% of the time, you know, but when you make it into the money, it's, it covers the other times you don't. Yeah, exactly. With, 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 yeah, with, uh, with, with cash game poker, it's a bit different cash game poker. It's like you get your choice of who you want to play against and you can, you can just, you know, decide you don't want to play in a table because you see other great players and just look around for tables where you see players who aren't so great. <laughs> and then you're much more often 
you know, going to win money. Those are, those odds are kind of like venture odds, startup odds. Like you, most companies don't succeed, but the ones that, that do succeed end up either paying out the fund uh, for a VC or making somebody's career uh, as an entrepreneur. Yeah. So I find myself stumbling into these areas where like, you know, you, you really have to be headstrong and and tenacious and, uh, uh, and like persistent, just continuously do it and just have faith that at some point, you know, as long as you make the optimal decisions, things will work out. Okay. Right. How do you, do you, were you, do you think you just grew up with that comfort and risk and these kind of, um, yeah, just, I, it, it, I think, I don't know if you'd describe it differently, but uh, the language I have available to me is just being really comfortable with risk and um, doing things that would seem kind of like crazy bets to other people. Yeah, so I think part of that might be just because I grew up like with a father that was a doctor and kind of, you know, he was fairly well off, right? I mean, he wasn't like super well off or anything, but he was like, you know, had a, a legitimate profession and, and uh, just knowing that like there was a backstop in life, maybe contributed mm-hmm. to that. Yeah. And maybe that contributed in a bad way. Maybe like, you know, maybe I did take way too much risk on when I was younger. I definitely feel much more risk averse these days now that having something that's grown so big, like Blockfolio and there's so much more to think about. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, where, and, and, and a lot of that comes from, you know, just again, talking to the managers of the team, getting their buy-in on things. Um, you know, it, it's sort of this network, this support network around me that prevents me from, uh, you know, driving the car off a cliff or something. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, it, but it, you know, it just, it also makes it, 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 we become a lot more data driven and a lot more, um, I would say, uh, or I, I've become more so because i you know from what i've learned from them uh and then um but yeah but i, I would say growing up like i don't know i, I to be honest uh, it's uh you know i don't i don't know why i had a uh an attraction to to things that were more risky do you do you think it's a a surprise or totally expected that there seem to be so many poker folks in the crypto space because I've, so I've that, that. that does not surprise me at all because so poker like there was there was in in the early days of online poker there was a company called net teller and net teller and especially poker players have been around for a while they that, that remember that it was a uh, it was like international transfer of like uh you know fiat it was instantaneous and it was so convenient, especially if you're playing on different poker sites and poker online poker players love that. And then the U S government shut, shut all that down. Like I said, in right. 2006. And so you had all these poker players that now had that, that have seen this like sort of shadow banking industry that surfaced around online gambling. That was, you know, um, and it was difficult to, to, to cash. You went from moving money around between online gambling sites being instantaneous to where like, if you had to cash out money from an online gambling site, it was going to take, you know, 15 to 21 days to receive a check. And, uh, and, and, and we all knew it was, it was sort of 
you know, realized it was, there was the shadiness of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, and constantly seeing online poker sites go up in smoke, it was very similar to seeing uh, in the earlier days, uh, you know, online crypto exchanges go up in smoke. Hmm. But, uh, but, but then when Bitcoin came around, um, you know, it all of a sudden became easy to move money in and out of online Bitcoin poker sites. And it was reminiscent of, you know, the earlier days of online poker. Hmm. So I think anybody that kind of experienced that probably just immediately saw the value of, of this nascent technology and how it could, you know, how it had circumvented U.S. efforts to, to control their money. Yeah. And, and at least it was really obvious to me that, that, that this is something worth exploring. And the other thing, too, is uh, at the high stakes, there are a lot of professional poker players that come from Europe to go to the World Series every summer hmm. uh, in Las Vegas. And, you know, they would find themselves traveling with, you know, 50000 or even up to $100,000 in cash with them, you know, basically sneaking it in, <laughs> right? So Why did they need could, to do that? to to play uh because the tournaments in the world series are and all the cash games they're very big stakes right? oh i see okay so and they the needed that event, to stake themselves yeah and the main event for instance was a ten thousand dollar buy-in there's a fifty thousand dollar tournament that happens every year uh as well and so uh yeah and so that's crazy i Where, guess they it reminds they me didn't of, want to, oh, sorry yeah. Go ahead. oh i was just gonna say and it was like uh you know poker is a big because it's basically a cash industry, right? And so, so when when they when these big high stakes players discovered crypto, they could basically say to their friends who are Las Vegas residents, like, "Hey, let me send you some crypto, yeah, and then you can give me some cash when I get there. This is super convenient. I don't have to worry about getting caught with a lot of cash on me at the airport." Um, and I think that's sort of and and then the last the last piece of it is that being at the poker table is like a sewing circle. I mean, like you have as guys discover opportunities or things that are interesting, they share it with all the other people at the table. Right. Yeah. Um, I um, see. So it's kind of you know, viral something like there. that. Something like, yeah, something like that. Like, you know, learning about Bitcoin and the ease of transferring, it's not like some competitive edge that they're sharing with the, their opponents. Right. Yeah. So, huh. so that was, that was, that was interesting. And you, I, so you, you were playing, you were still playing poker. You were getting exposed to Bitcoin and, mm-hmm. but I, I think, Help me understand the decision process of, all right, I'm going to drop this and pick this up. Because I, I, it, it probably wasn't just to speculate on Bitcoin or some, some of our altcoins. What was the like new thing that you observed in it and what did you want to do with it? To be honest, it was when, when the, amount of, the amount I was making off of crypto investments was surpassing the amount i was making from playing poker okay i gotcha uh, in in that case but but <laughs> so you know i got I, I came into crypto in 2013 2014 and just you know piled in on it because i was super excited about it and believed you know in the technology and kind of like the future that i thought um crypto would bring about and uh and of course like you know like everybody else who came in in 2017 bull run, you go through the 2018 bear market <laughs> and you get kicked in the balls. Right. And mm-hmm. so for me, 2015 and 2016 were brutal uh, because I was probably pretty overexposed in crypto. Mm-hmm. And so I continued to play poker to provide for my livelihood. And, uh, and then eventually the markets, uh, you know, in 2017 got very bullish and, 
at that point, you know, the investments I held on to started doing fairly well. And, uh, and on top of that, there was a combination of things and Blockfolio just got so busy because of the amount of users that we started seeing come into the app. When, when did you start Blockfolio? Uh, 2014. We okay. started building it. Yeah. Launched in 2015. So in 2017, you know, I was making money from investments and simultaneously my responsibilities at Blockfolio kept increasing just the amount of time I needed to commit to it. Yeah that I just found myself not having the time to play poker and also financially not needing to play poker. Oh, interesting. So you were at, so. At a, at, there was a period of time where you were simultaneously playing poker, investing in digital assets, starting Blockfolio. Uh, yeah. Got it. And then you just, you, you had to focus because one of them was shooting up and the other. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And yeah. There was a period of time where I felt like I had three jobs. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> You probably still feel a little bit like that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, what can you tell the story of how Blockfolio got started? Because I think it's a really interesting one. Yeah. So I was on Bitcoin Talk Forum. Um, I had had a friend, Richard, out of England, who was, um, but we were kind of looking at investments together, and this was late 2013, early 2014. And, uh, and I was constantly on Bitcoin talk forum and looking at different projects. I was really excited about Darkcoin. Uh, you know, there was a couple other forums where I was in this via forum at the time that seemed interesting. And I kept seeing this one handle primitive, uh, in there. And, uh, the guy, I reached out to the guy cause we kept having discussions about different projects that were launching, uh, on, on this forum on Bitcoin talk forum. And so one day uh, you know, reached out to him on private message and said, Hey man, do you want to talk over the phone? It'd be nice to be able to chat with you, uh, in real time about some of these things. We're always in the same forums and that his name is Charlie Mason. And he turned out, he eventually became one of the co-founders of Blockfolio. And, you know, serendipitously, it turned out that he lived, you know, this is a global forum and serendipitously, it turned out that he lived about two miles away from me in, in, in Venice. And I'm in, you know, in, in Los Angeles. So, uh, we started talking about, um, you know, doing a lot of, we started looking at investments together. And then around the same time, Richard Anderson showed me this app called Pocket Crypto, which was the sort of like the home screen of Blockfolio with nothing else. And he said that there was a kid on Bitcoin Talk who had, who had created it. And he thought it was a pretty neat, clever, neat little uh, interface, right? And it, and uh, so he showed it to me and, uh, and he said that he would he would offer that kid for like a new functionality or feature in it. He would like PM him and offer him like a hundred dollars worth of crypto to put something into his app. And he said he would usually have it into the app by the next day. <laughs> so I was like, wow, okay, so this kid, like, you know, he can code, you know, his you know, at least I, you know, that's my impression. Turns out he could. Uh, <laughs> and so uh I I I asked Richard to connect me with him. Uh, cause I thought it was a really interesting, uh, uh, interface. And, and I sort of realized that I was like, wow, I think we could add bells and whistles to this thing. Uh, we can add like, you know, alerts, new section, um, maybe an order book. And, uh, and you know, we should probably rebrand it from pocket crypto. And I think we can start a business up. And so Charlie, you know, who I'd met was previously a film producer who'd done independent films with budgets up to like $8 million. 
and he was passionate about mobile and passionate about crypto. And he was very, very kind of like organized, I would say, uh, and, and uh, kind of great about dotting I's and crossing T's and keeping things moving forward. So I asked him if he would, uh, if he would join this project with me. I said I, wanted, I was going to reach out to the kid Peter and ask him if he wants to start up a business. Uh, and he said he was interested in helping out. I reached out to Peter. Peter was excited uh, about trying to do something together. And then there was another friend of ours, Ken Feldman, uh, who was a UX UI designer who we asked to join to kind of help with the interface. And then we all got together and created, started Blockfolio. Um, Charlie was going to be the CEO. Uh, Ken, the designer, Peter building things. And I would come up, I would have the relationships, uh, do biz dev type stuff, come up with uh, product features whenever possible. And that was sort of the original team building Blockfolio. Uh, we funded it with $45,000, um, that, you know, a few, a few of us had put in and that, and that money allowed us to all work part-time on it and basically build Blockfolio over the next year. And that money kind of, I, I kept things afloat for about two years until 2017 wave came into the space. Did you, so. it sounds like, did you, when you thought, when you assembled the team to build Blockfolio, what was going through your mind? Was it like, this is a fun project to do because it makes sense? Was it, I'm looking for a startup to start? Uh, like, what, what was your mindset? So at the time I was like, it was almost like my mindset around uh, investing in crypto, right? It was like, I was trying to find good projects and then, you know, take like, you know, some small amount of money and invest in it. Hmm. Well, this was sort of a similar kind of idea. I was like, this is why I didn't, I, at the beginning I, I was like the amount of involvement I was going to have was much less than it is today. Right. I, I was just going to be, I, I actually looked at myself more like just the deal maker and putting it together. And then I was going to let those guys run with it. Right. Yeah. And, uh, um, a little bit more too. like we, me and Charlie and, and Peter, like we'd already, like we deeply believed in the, in the space. Uh, we kind of, we'd have discussions back then about this feature where there would be like 10,000 blockchain assets that people wanted to track. Um, and back then there was 200 maybe. Right. And, and so we wanted to build this for ourselves because we we're active traders in the space. But at the same time, we sort of knew in the back of our head, this has potential. Like one day we think that this is where the world's going. So if we're going to build this thing for ourselves, why don't we put the effort in and make it professional? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, uh, uh, sort of like, you know, if it works great. And Charlie and I had previously, uh, had a couple of startups that didn't work out and, and new market timing was a very hard science and that sometimes it takes a lot longer than you think to get there hmm. so when we started blockfolio we were very frugal right try to spend as little as possible just do it part-time continue to have our jobs on the side um and so um yeah and and we we it was like if you think about it like if your time is equal to money we all you know placed a small bet on blockfolio in the beginning and then as it grew, we would like get more and more invested into the point, you know, where eventually we all quit our jobs or just focused entirely on that. Right. Um, so, yeah. And, and uh, I, does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. I, I think what, what, what strikes me about the story is just how organic it is. The whole thing 
just flows and evolves. You were playing poker, you discovered this thing, you got caught up in it and got really excited about it. You found something that scratched an itch of yours. You had people around you that could help turn that thing into a project. And then it just grew on its own and ended up being something that you wanted to spend more time on. And then Blockflow continued to evolve over over the years into into what it is now and what it will become in the future. Uh, it's really different from a lot of the other stuff, especially in the crypto space, where a few people get together and they like bang their heads against the wall to contrive some idea and then raise a bunch of money and think they have the all the answers on day one. Um, yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, it feels like a lot like a poker hand, right? It's like you're just absorbing information and as things look like they're working out really well, then you kind of, you know, leverage that situation. You know, like poker's like, I don't know. In a poker hand, things always change, right? You know, you might have two aces to be, you know, before the flop in the beginning of the hand, which is like, you know, if you get all your money in pre-flop, you're going to win 80% of the time, Mm -hmm. right? But then if it turns out that you make it to the flop or the turn of the river and you're getting new information and all of a sudden now your two aces might look like garbage you know based upon like the betting uh behavior that your opponents show right and uh and similarly like with with you know i don't know this journey in the startup you know we had we we you know we were we were we were placing lots of bets blockfolio was just one of them and then as that hand started looking really promising you know we're like, all right, like, how do we push on the gas pedal on this to make sure that it we maximize the opportunity? Yeah. Uh, the other thing I like about it is it kind of goes counter to the conventional wisdom of Silicon Valley, where they're like, you got to pick one thing and focus super hard on it and don't do anything else. Um, so I, I've, I, at, at one point, that's what we had to do. Right. Of course. Right. And, and there was a, a point of that. And that, but I think, uh, you know um i think there's also value in getting into an ecosystem very early on before anybody else does it makes life so easy right you get to see all the opportunities and do little tests and figure out where you want to make a bet yeah i mean to kind of break into the space now and do what blockfolio is doing is be so hard right these days and think about it like you have to have so much experience uh to assemble a team that's probably going to, you know, build the right product to compete against like a, a well-established incumbent or something. Whereas back then, you know, you could have been anybody. And there was like, I remember back in 2014, 2015, you know, another thing that I was, had been pretty deeply involved with was Dash. Um, and one previous, actually when it was called Darkcoin is when I got involved with it. And I remember, you know, back then there were so few developers in the space that you know they were it felt like we were just begging if like anybody had done like you know program their parents website <laughs> we wanted them to kind of help out hmm. right and find some way of like uh getting them involved so different than it is today right and but that's one of the luxuries you have when you're when you're very early on right but one of the risks that you have when you're very early on is that you could be totally wrong <laughs> about the space or it may take a very, very long time before the space matures to where it's like, you know, a real industry. Right. So the the Dash store is pretty interesting too. It's it's kind of similar in that there was this 
new phase of the industry where folks are creating their, the first altcoins. Um, and from what I understand, you and some friends just kind of ran with it and did a bunch of work that grew Dash without really any formal arrangements with the team. Um, is that yeah. right? Yep. Initially, we, yeah. So that friend Richard from England and then, uh, and then Charlie, I introduced uh, a, a few other friends to Darkcoin. Uh, this is what it was called before it was rebranded to Dash. It was the first anonymous focus or like like cryptocurrency that was fo- that was that, that was anonymous mm. um and in 2000 when i kind of learned about it in 2014 i'd been hearing rumblings about bit license in the future and sort of felt like um you know early libertarian bitcoin adopters would be pretty disgruntled about regulation coming into the space and that they might look for anon alternatives like Darkcoin, right? And so, me and a group of friends accumulated a, a, a sizable position. One, one in particular, held like you know eighty five percent of that position, and and we started wondering like what can we do to like Dash or Darkcoin at the time was trying to be like you know cryptocurrency, digital money, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 we were just trying to figure out like what can we do with this position? What, how can we help out the ecosystem? And uh, you know, hopefully, watch adoption increase and watch the infrastructure of the ecosystem get built out. Um, and so we started treating it, I guess, like a, a VC might treat it, where we would just like leverage our relationships, talk to anybody we could to 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 see what what we could do to help. And this is before we ever even talked to a single person on the Dash core team, right? Um, but I think the first thing that we did is we ended up. I had a loose relationship with Giancarlo, one of the founders of Bitfinex, and I approached them and and uh, so kind of I guess sold them on the idea of listing Darkcoin, which is the first cryptocurrency they ever listed besides Bitcoin and Litecoin, which they launch with, hmm. right? And so uh, that it and so I did that, uh, or like me and Richard, I would say, did that, and uh, um, or Richard and I, and uh, and then. And then I reached out to Evan Duffield, the core developer of Dash, over Bitcoin Talk again. I sent him a PM. <laughs> it was like, listen, my name's Ed. I'm the guy that you know helped get this on Bitfinex, and 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 as a result of that, he was very appreciative and and you know took us seriously. Uh, and then we started kind of behind the scenes collaborating uh, with Evan uh, to the point where we realized it was a good idea to try to start a foundation up. And then I brought in a friend who was an attorney named Harold Boo who now works with us at Blockfolio as well. And Harold uh, helped structure the original Dash Foundation, or Darkcoin Foundation. He was a board member. I was a board member. Evan was a board member. Uh, and then we had Fernando uh, and one other board member uh, on there. And that's how I got involved in Dash. It was really it was really just contributing to the ecosystem first and trying to get things done and then reaching out to the guys and continuing to try to get things done. You know, sort of you know, I don't know. I think that's my approach to, towards everything. It's just like constantly just doing whatever you can to move things forward. I feel like stagnation is like, I don't know. It's a big fear of mine. How, how, how critically do you think about the things you want to move forward or is it pretty gut based? So yes, I'm very different than most of the people you probably talked to <laughs> <laughs> in the fact that like, in the fact that it's very gut based. 
in fact, I, I'm oftentimes feel like, um, when I hang out with a lot of the, the super intellectuals in crypto space that are, you know, welcoming me because of things that I've done with Blockfolio, uh, and I have, the, I have these conversations, sometimes I feel like imposter syndrome because just the depth and understanding they have of the space is just incredible and their technical understanding and how everything fits together. And I just find myself being very quiet and listening mm. because, because, because I don't feel like I've, I have had that deep analysis or that the ability to analyze the thing so deeply as they do. Right. But yet at the same time, I keep finding myself in these spots, <laughs> you know, where we've sort of navigated things and made the right decisions, you know? Um, and, and, uh, and that's, and that's primarily driven by, by instincts. It's, I mean, that, that's like the, the, one of the greatest ironies, right? Cause the reason you, a lot of the stuff that you've done is just prescient. Uh, it's like new, exciting work that's happening today is stuff that was, um, experimented with by something that you, you did based on gut, you know, it just like all the Dow stuff today. That's it. yeah, and and that was yeah that that that's that's like that's a good example of like the instinct right thing. yeah exactly <laughs> like back in 2014 we uh, we we had seen that Bitcoin had organically had about 500 million dollars in venture money that sort of funded build out of the infrastructure of the space uh, you know freed is mobile wallets exchanges uh, things of that sort. And, and we're like, how do we get this kind of money into the dark coin space? Like, this is what it needs to be able to compete as a digital currency. Right. And, uh, and originally we were going to try to, uh, you know, create an incubator, like what consensus did with Ethereum. Um, and then we were going to call it protoculture, but we wanted to focus on dark coin only projects. And then, like I said, remember, I like I said, there's a group of us and one of them held the vast majority of the position. Well, you know, he voiced his um, discontent with creating an incubator because he felt that, you know, he was going to be contributing most of the money to all these free-to-use mm. products that were good for our investment. But he felt that it was an unfair distribution of the risk right. that, you know, all these other token holders that had nothing to do with us were going to benefit from this, right? So sort of trying to solve that problem, we ended up coming with the, with the idea of, why don't we direct a portion of the mining rewards into a fund and then let token holders vote on use of this funds, these funds and anybody could propose a project. And that was the sort of like, you know, I, we, pre, we presented that to Evan in December, 2014. He loved the idea and he, he ended up writing the white paper with Fernando, the other board member and in, in Q1 of 2015 and they called it uh, decentralized government governance by blockchain. And it was basically a governance and treasury model uh, that they implemented into the protocol, uh, allowing uh, 10% of the mining rewards to be used to, to vote, to, to kind of build out the infrastructure, to be used for anything that would benefit Dash. And today they've rephrased it. They've kind of re- renamed it. It's, they refer to it as inflation funding. And, uh, and you probably, there are probably two dozen projects out there that now are either building or have already launched some sort of inflation yeah. funding mechanism. And, and that was, uh, that was, again, this was sort of like a little bit gut instinct, trying to solve some interesting problems, trying to figure out how to compete with as 
you know, massive incumbent. And I think uh, what what's you know, uh, one moment where you follow your gut and something good happens might just be lucky. But I look across all of your experiences and you follow your gut into some new area that most people wouldn't have a good reason to go into. And then not only do you find something interesting there, you tend to perform like at a extremely high level. Why, why, how are you able to do that? It like blows my mind that you could be so good at skateboarding and then so good at poker and then so successful in your companies. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, let, let, let me, let me, I, I, my, my, my gut tells me that you'd probably be too hum, too humble to, to have a prepared answer for something like that. Maybe I would reframe it as like, how do you even think about performance? Is that a concept that you are actively cultivating or is it just, you have this strong drive to figure things out and everything just follows from that strong drive? It's, it's honest. Here's what it is. I dive in head mm. first. <laughs> it's such a bad thing to say, you know, but I, I do because when I, when I kind of get this sort of inkling that I found like a diamond in the rough or something like that, you know, I, I, well, the first thing is I'm usually finding it in some area that's very, um, that I, I sort of have like a passion for. Right. And so it makes it not feel like work. It just feels like yeah. fun. And, and I just obsess on it and I'll just like dive in head first and I'll just, and it's, it's like, you know, that's, and I, you know, that, I think that's what allows me to, uh, outperform. Like I'll find things very early on and then I'll just dive in head first and then I'll continue with them too. That's the other thing, right? In 2015 and 16 bear market, a lot of new entrants in the market and market into the crypto market, a lot of the new entrants, they left and, but I still believed in it and loved it. And I was like, well, we're not leaving. We're just going to keep doing this. This is still very interesting, very fun, very fulfilling. Uh, you know, whatever happens happens. Um, and so uh, you get to continuously build a foundation from that. It's um, the tenacity that you mentioned and, earlier. Yeah, it's tenacity. Um, part of it's competitive drive. Not so much. I would say the tenacity. I want to see this become mm. real, right? Yeah, that, and that, that would be... Okay, so yeah. So with poker, my my desire was to win a World Series bracelet. Like I had this crazy like pathological need to like i i need to mm. win one and i would play tournaments non-stop and work my way up and here's the the kind of nutty thing is that i remember after i won that bracelet this sort of like um you get this calm that happens because now you've achieved this bucket list item right and because i wasn't totally driven by money like then all of a sudden i was like well now what do i yeah. do right and it was like that fire was gone and I realized it. And that, that was that kind of, I would say represented the beginning of the end of my career in poker was that day that I won that bracelet. Right. And, uh, but until I won that bracelet, it was just like an obsession. Like, you know, I was playing seven days a week, probably eight hours a day at minimum. 
right? It reminds me of that guy so who, that, um, did you watch that documentary about the guy, Alex, who free solos? Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, I did see that. It's it's yeah. totally just about him competing with himself and he is just obsessed with achieving something for the experience yeah. of doing it. He he like is obsessed with this concept of performance, which I found interesting. And it's per- he 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 had this interesting, yeah, he he was more of a perfectionist than mm-hmm. than I am by yeah. far. <laughs> but there's a there, there is there is some similarity in the fact that like uh you know uh there's I feel like that for me if I had to describe where this was rooted in it was the fact that I was probably a middle child and felt overlooked by my mm. parents and I have felt that I had this like you know unconscious like this need or desire to like to set my sights on these goals and just no matter what I want to achieve them almost to be able to as, as corny as or sad as this might sound it's like so that I could get my father's approval mm. <laughs> right you know um but sometimes that's like the weird stuff that happens that you know is behind interesting developments that occur i guess yeah i i can totally relate i uh i had a similar thing i played tennis growing up and played college um just i don't think i was committed enough or tall enough or athletic enough to play pro but played in college and winning a national championship was like my version of the world series of poker bracelet we ended up winning mm-hmm. it my senior year and after that i was just like okay <laughs> now if it feel, feels great uh but now like what what do you do next and i i think exactly. i think what one one struggle that i've had in my life uh, and I wonder if you have something similar is that's like a just latent feeling inside of me at all times. And I, it expresses itself in different ways. And if it's the most productive way is like, okay, I want to, you know, write the best blog that I can about this space that I don't, I'm like coming in kind of new to. And that, that like really works for me. And that's, that's a really, it, it leads to good outcomes and it's a productive use of my time. But then I apply it to like really useless things. Like I want to be top X percent in this video game, like Fortnite or whatever game I'm playing. And there's just absolutely no way that I'm ever going to be good enough for it to be productive. But that same habit that I have that's driving me to like seek performance is keeping me like, you know, having me sink hours and hours into these things where I'm just like trying to, score a little higher than some 12 year old <laughs> yeah so i've kind of as i've gotten older i've learned to like limit what i sort of allow myself to become obsessed mm. with right because i i try not to play video games because i know i'm gonna get sucked into it like and just be like i have to like outperform and like you know i'll probably spend massive amounts of hours in it my wife would probably like just uh, you just completely disappear, <laughs> and you yeah, know, totally. <laughs> if I was doing that, right? And so, so I, yeah, I, 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 uh, I try to, I try to like, um, uh, um, 
sort of like that's that's funny because it's like that's like a superpower and yeah. right and and it's and it, it would re, depending on how you use it it can be one or the right. other right so so it's and then it's and then and it's and it's tough because it's it's because it's part of your personality like you can't turn it off yes <laughs> so you just yeah you, you you then then i then i find myself all right if, I, if i'm gonna like be that way you know i'm gonna do it in crypto and i'm gonna focus on crypto and then when i was in crypto i was like all right i'll do it in dash i did that for dash for a while right and it was really fun to see like you know some of those things that contributions that i can that i you know brought to dash kind of come to fruition mm-hmm. over time and then then it was blockfolio i want to do this for blockfolio right and uh and it was funny because my wife one time said to me and i've mentioned this on another podcast about like when i when i do head first into bitcoin and she was like she said, I remember when I used to be your Bitcoin. <laughs> that's like, the saddest that's the saddest thing and, I've ever heard anybody say and then, about crypto. And then and then I said, I said, Don't worry, baby, you're my Ethereum. <laughs> she didn't she did she didn't get that. <laughs> and depending on who's listening, uh that could either be a really nice thing to say or a really awful yeah. thing to say. <laughs> yeah. Now now she's my cosmos. That's my thing. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> But it's it, it is so right. true that you need to find ways to um, harness that 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 force, uh, and and I think for me at least, being even just like growing aware of it was a big breakthrough. Just knowing that that's kind of how my brain is wired, and if I don't pay attention to it, it's going to latch onto something and like really want to ride it. Um, yeah, I th- I think that's why I get along with you so yeah. well, Tony. Because like when we have similar personalities and like when we start talking about things, like I feel like, uh, you know, you, you have an extremely creative mind, but also like very, you're intellectually rigorous. And then like, you know, um, you can see that you think about things quite intensely. And, uh, you know, for me, it's very gut driven, but then like I'll, I'll kind of share things with you and you see the same thing oftentimes. And it's really fun. It makes it yeah, really fun conversation. Absolutely, and I think the what one the, your your trust in your gut is a really um, like fascinating thing because I I don't let myself trust my gut as much, and I think that's partially because of another like strength weakness thing where I I think I'm pretty strong at taking in a bunch of information, doing an analysis, figuring out which things are probably higher EV and then making those decisions, like maybe in some cases too practical. And so I don't actually have a lot of like a string of data points where it's like, Oh, in this case I followed my gut and it, it did well. In this case I followed my gut. It didn't do well. And it, I, it seems like, <clears throat> I wonder whether you feel like people uh, should do that more in their careers. Like, should people be taking more risks? Should people be doing more un- unconventional things? Is there qualifiers that are important? Like, you know, as long as you feel you have a strong foundation or you have some, um, like, a, uh, uh, I mean, I, you know, not everybody's got good instincts. Some people are really strong analytically. Right. So it's like, it's just a personality. That's trait. a good point. Like I've just, I've, I've, I've found I've met people that I think have very poor instincts <laughs> and are are very you know, but have like succeeded in life because they're very diligent, 
you know, and like they kind of follow the rules, right? And uh, have like pretty mainstream job, like conventional yeah. jobs, like corporate type jobs, right? And they have this framework where like there are other skill sets that allow them to move up, right? And but but I would say like you know as a startup or as an entrepreneur, I think you need to have strong mm-hmm. instincts, right? Like I would I would think. And but and and it's funny though because then as as the company grows though. Um, and there's, you know, now we're a big organization. Um, I, I, I'm very fearful now at this stage of the company in Blockfolio because we have so many people involved in it, spending so much time that I, I make an effort now to try not to push my instincts, um, as much as before without battle testing them, without like trying to challenge having people challenge those ideas, um, you know, which is tough to do sometimes when, you know, I think when you're kind of at the helm of an operation is sometimes it's just like, um, um, it's, it's, I guess, you know, it's difficult to be able to say like, I know this person is disagreeing with me right now. And I want to kind of do this, but let me listen to what he has to say. Let me, you know, try to understand his perspective and see if that'll, you know, I can absorb and synthesize that information and will it impact what I originally thought from my instincts? Uh, Because, I mean, I'm not always 100% right, you know. I've had my my share of, of, you know, misfires. Um, I guess guess what's scary now is that, you know, I don't want to, you know, misfires are much more costly. Yeah. It's a long, it's a long way down now. It's There's a lot more at stake <laughs> and a lot of more people yeah. who your decisions impact. Yeah, exactly. And so this is a learning process for me. You know, how do I kind of take old Ed who is just purely like gut and instinct driven and like, you know, try to make this transformation into a new Ed, uh, you know, so we'll see. What would your parents say? Like, if you asked your parents what they thought you'd be doing with your career as an adult when you were a child, uh, and what you're doing now, would would they be surprised? Uh, yeah, my dad thought that I was probably going to end up being an engineer. Yeah. Like, that's what he wanted me to be, you know, and. Uh, uh, my mom, uh, I don't know. She she was very supportive, and you know, of anything I wanted to do. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't I don't know if they. I mean, they probably thought I was going to do something that was very math oriented. That's always kind of where I excelled mm. in uh, elementary and high school, middle school and high school. So um, I, I I I would I will say this: like they don't understand what I do. The crypto <laughs> stuff. Oh, not yeah. at all. No, it's it's like. It's like talking a foreign language to them. They 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 see these accomplishments, these like different milestones <laughs> happening, and that they can that they know are impressive, right? But they still don't understand what we're doing at Blockfolio or the crypto space or how it's going to change things. You know how it's going to be impactful on this planet, uh, how blockchain technology. Will yeah. Be. And 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 so, and that's kind of interesting too because it's like, uh, it, I mean, it kind of shows how complicated it is. My dad's a doctor, right? Um, 
and he's a, a very sharp guy and and i think uh you know we're still we're still a ways away from mass adoption this stuff is so complicated i think for for the mainstream to understand yeah. what's something you do or did that you think more people should do uh like a habit that i've done yeah, like a habit or um pursuit or anything like that yeah what well, is something like that uh i think um um i would say um i try not to be deliberate like i i have or maybe i just try i would say that's that might be the wrong word like i i i, I mean I meet so many people in the crypto space and I feel like oftentimes one things that one of the things that really kind of bums me out is that like when relationships feel so transactional mm. and maybe they're so, you know, I meet people who are often just interested. There's, they're, they just, I don't know how to describe this, but I'm very, uh, if I can't find a win-win situation where it feels like both sides are, are going to come out ahead. Um, I'm very cautious to like not try to push my agenda forward yeah. and just, and just wait until I find something where it just feels like a, a very organic, like natural fit for something. This goes from partnerships that we do at Blockfolio to hiring that we do at Blockfolio to advisors that we have at Blockfolio. Um, and, and also like, I'm like that with friendships and relationships as well, you know? Um, and I, and I think that's, I'm I'm very I, I try yeah maybe that's also instinct driven as well <laughs> right what's well, well, what's interesting there is uh it's very abundance thinking like positive sum game thinking where uh yeah. poker is like explicitly zero sum right like there's some amount of money on a table and it gets split between people so that that like longer term thinking uh in the context of your success playing poker is pretty interesting well that, i think that's one of the reasons why i left poker because i over time i just saw how it changed people it's that zero-sum game aspect of it and uh uh you know it in poker your best case scenario is you surround yourself with eight people who are uh not not nearly as good as at poker as you are and have a whole lot of money right right um, whereas like in being an entrepreneur, it's more of like a team sport, right? And your best case scenario is to surround yourself with the most, the smartest, brightest, most talented people. And it, and it, and, and one of them, it's like, you're extracting value from everyone around you and you just look at them as like a dollar sign. Yeah. Right. And then an entrepreneur, it's like, you know, like how do we optimize this team and make it better and better and better? Um, and you know who else can we bring on board that's going to help the, elevate the team? Yeah, and it's one of them sucks your soul, <laughs> <laughs> and the other one, the, the other one is like so fulfilling. Right. And and it, but yeah, at the same time, you know, there's as an entrepreneur, it's not like things are always easy though. There's yeah, as, as you grow a company, things get complicated. There's you know interpersonal dynamics. Is you know, I think that. For me, the, the funnest time, and it's Blockfolio is still extremely fun. It's just very different now, right? But the super fun times are, are I think, when you have like seven or eight people in the company because you just sort of feel like you can do anything you want. You can go any direction you want. Yeah, just a bunch of pirates. There's, pirates in the sea. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. And there's there's less stakeholders, you know? 
there, there's less, uh, you know, um, it, it's, it's, you know, I don't know that that's, I love startup stages. I love, I love the startup stage of any company or any project where it's just a clean slate and there's so much, it's, it's all about your imagination. Right. So the, uh, somebody said, I forgot who said it, but there's this great line from somebody who says that, uh, if you just don't, don't do business with people that you don't want to do business with for the rest of your life. And I think I find that to be like a very helpful guiding principle because over the don't do business, don't do business with anybody you don't want to do business with for the rest of your life. And, and and I think in some cases that doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't apply if you're like selling widgets maybe, but um, in, for me, it's been really helpful because as uh, I've been fortunate to get a number of opportunities um, in crypto and have been able to meet lots of really interesting people, but and sometimes it's really tempting to take to 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 do some kind of deal or do some kind of work uh, for purely transactional reasons. Uh, and and having that in mind, like, is this a person I want around for decades? Um, yeah, is such a helpful framing. I hundred percent agree with that. In fact, I'd say that like uh, everybody is so profit driven. I guess so. Like, you know, looking to make money that they just jump into kind of startup relationships uh, very quickly. I think too quickly. Right. But uh, the truth is, is that they're like marriages, even like early employees, like you should treat them like, you know, with the same kind of like scrutiny and rigor that you do when you're dating people. Right. And how you kind of learn, you know, in your first startups, you learn what not to do. Just like in, when you first learn, you know, date, you know, you kind of learn, what your preferences are, what your preferences aren't, what alignments are positive, you know, do you see the world the same way in politics and children and things like this, right? And and you don't compromise that as you kind of learn what you want, right? And I think when you're kind of running a company, at least in the early stages, what I found very beneficial is to uh, is to treat it almost like I would as I'm looking for somebody to marry, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, because even when you do find somebody that you want to marry, it's not easy, <laughs> You know, still 50% of the marriages end up in divorce in the United States, it's right? So, I mean, it's Something like so that. hard. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so if you think about it that way, if you're just like, you know, putting a team quickly together to like focus, to try to build a company and you don't, you're not really that scrutinous about who you let in, uh, you know, if they, you know, they might not fit the company culture just right or something like that. Like these things pay off. Like they, they hurt you later on when you, you know, um, and you don't realize it earlier on sometimes, um, you know, without having those experiences. I had that in a previous startup. We started a social gaming company back in 2010. And I sort of found myself, you know, we raised a little bit of money for it. And uh, I think at one point we had about, you know, 13 employees. But I remember kind of waking up one day and realizing, wow, I'm not like, I'm not that excited about the people that I go into mm-hmm. work with every day. Right. Even, and that was part of the learning process was, you know, after that startup, I decided that that anytime we hire anybody a blockfolio, like I want I want both sides to feel like they're marrying up, right? And be excited about it. And 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 feel like this person is perfect for the job and is just somebody that I think is really smart and funny, uh and, you know, and uh and and I think it's paid off. I think we have a great company culture at Blockfolio now. Uh 
I don't know. You've been there and met some of the people. Hopefully you think yeah. the same thing, but, I, but we've invested in that a lot. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to, um, procrastinate doing that. I've been in, in many companies where there's issues spring up because insufficient investment was made in designing thoughtfully the environment that everybody shares and the mindset that hopefully everybody shares too. And it only gets harder as you get bigger. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have to kind of come up with these sort of like guiding principles of how you're going to hire later on, you know, sort of criteria that you have and have to be, you know, pretty um, committed to it uh, and not slip up on it. But yeah. Anyway. So let's, uh, let's review what, what, what did we all, what did we talk about today? Oh, a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what, what stands out? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Talking about like the poker stuff is always fun to talk about. Like we talked about like, you know, Blockfolio and Dash. Uh, you know, I don't know. What stands out to you? I think all of those. I, I think the uh, the just the the history leading up to Blockfolio is really fascinating to me. Just how you've navigated those different areas <clears throat> and um, organically evolved your interests and skills and followed your gut and didn't give up. I, I find that really, um, it's like the ideal way you want a career to go. And when you're, when you're younger, you, you kind of uh, feel pressure to intelligently design your, your career path. And you, you gotta go to this school and then do this thing and then follow that thing for, for a while. But in reality, almost everybody's career is this really windy thing where they try lots of stuff. Um, and those those transition points are really anxiety-inducing, uh, at least just speaking for myself. I think the, the, the idea of changing companies, changing functions, um, it's, it's simultaneously exciting and, and pretty scary. So like the freedom to feel like, that's natural, right? Like that's the way things should be and that things will work out. And that's a, it, it, it's a very attractive um, concept. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'd definitely say, you know, I would say looking back at my career, I would have never, you know, 20 years ago, I'd never thought that I'm going to be doing what I'm doing today. But I think that was, I don't know, like a, yeah, I mean, I've just always followed my gut and followed my passion, and I would actually say try to avoid responsibility. <laughs> okay. Uh, in the beginning, and somehow or another, I managed. I navigated my way into like having more responsibility than I know what to do. So you're saying you you uh, you were actively trying to avoid responsibility, or you're you're suggesting others tried to avoid responsibility early? I said, I said I oh, was okay. trying to, uh, like you know in. In pursuing poker, for instance, right, it was a uh, there was a lot of freedom in that. But I would I would say like you know my advice to people is that uh, um, find what you're interested in, right? It could be you know doing art or whatever, and just like dive headfirst into it. If it if it makes you feel fantastic, like if you just feel fulfilled doing it, uh, do it. But just do it better than anybody else. What commit? What more if you to fail it, right? though? Um, then that's, learning. <laughs> <laughs> that's experience. That's, that's experience, yeah. right? Try to learn from those failures. 
Um, I guess it it, go, it goes back you know. to poker again. It's like you, you you can afford to fail, but you can't afford to get ruined. However, you define that. Yeah, you can you can afford to fail as long as you learn from mm-hmm. it, right? Like, but if you if you're if if you're if you gain nothing from it, and there's and, and there's no knowledge that comes with it, and 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 you in the you know I don't know. Uh, like every one of my startup failures, it was, it was, I, I try to always look back and be introspective on it and like really think of like, what did I do wrong here? And like, how do I prevent this from happening if I do it in the yeah. future? Right. And, and, uh, but, but, you know, what I found is that when I, whenever I do anything and it's just driven by doing it for money, this is just me personally, right? That I've, I've, and that's solely the reason I was doing it. I found that it either hasn't worked out or it's just been so painful that I don't want to do yeah. it. <laughs> right. And, and when I do things just strictly out of passion, it's, it's, it's like, uh, it's the best feeling in the world because you feel like you're going to seventh grade summer camp every day. Right. And, but it's scary too, though, because, uh, but, but at the same time, like I, you know, what we did at Blockfolio, we did part-time in the beginning, right. We weren't certain that this was going to be this crazy big company, you know, in the future, well, it's not even a crazy big company yet, but hopefully one day it will be. Um, but we were, you know, we, we decided we were just going to put part of our time into it and, and see what comes out of it. And, and, uh, and we all loved it. On that wonderful note, uh, we should, we should wrap. That's uh, I don't think yeah. we can do better than that. Yeah, Tony, thanks so much for the time. You know, uh, it's super fun sharing, you know, kind of my journey. Um, hopefully it helps you. In, in your journey um it, yeah i'm sure i'm sure it will it, it already has it's made me think about things pretty differently um where can where can folks uh learn more about you and blockfolio uh just go to www.blockfolio.com and uh you know you can learn more about blockfolio there you can download the app at uh we have it on ios and, and android um so yeah and uh thank anybody uh, love love any of the support that anybody's willing to give. All right, Ed. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Click here to apply is made possible by members of TonyShang.com. To become a member of TonyShang.com, go to TonyShang.com and click the membership button. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, leave a review. It helps other people find the show. And you might find your review featured in a future episode of Click here to apply. Got a question or comment? reach out to me on Twitter. My DMs are always open. Thanks for listening and see you next time.